Well, hello, podcasters. Um, frost abounds, mud drips through my tyres, the downpours and the sneezing. These collectively can only mean one thing. British spring has sprung. And hello, co-host Kerry. How are you in this glorious, grey, drizzly day? Uh, yeah, very well, thank you, John. How are you doing? I'm still here. And we're joined today with the pleasure of being joined by Tom, master of the puns, down to the wire. Hello, Tom. Morning, John. Glad to be back. My third time. Your third time. You must be doing something right. And uh, you're starting us off today, I believe, with um, some recent uh, decisions on uh, class actions. That's right, John. So for today, I've selected the recent case management decision in the Circo litigation, which I think will be interest to those monitoring the risk profile of claims under Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000. So that old chestnut, Tom. That old chestnut. Was Obvious, just, you know, the bread and butter of what we do. And as a reminder, this is the statutory regime imposing civil liability for inaccurate statements in information disclosed by listed issuers to the market. The case itself relates to a claim for losses suffered by certain institutional investors in relation to shares held in Circo Group PLC between 2006 and 2013. I think that this particular judgment looked at how the trial would be split. Is that right, Tom? Yeah, that, that's spot on, Kerry. So an earlier case management order confirmed there would be a split trial, and the trial too would determine the liability of only a sample of the claimants. So the most interesting aspect of this judgment are the observations made on the critical question of reliance, which has become a central battleground in these claims. Ah, yes, reliance. I imagine, Tom, that the shape of this circle litigation has changed significantly uh, over the last year since the court handed down judgment in the first uh, 90A FISMA case to come uh, before uh, to trial in this jurisdiction, which is the Lynch matter, uh, better known as the autonomy litigation. That, that's right as ever, John. So in autonomy, the court confirmed that in Section 90A FISMA claims, reliance must be on a statement or omission and not on a piece of published information in some generalised sense. So think, for example, the annual report for a given year. I suspect this clarification of the reliance requirement will make it more difficult to bring successful 90A claims. Um, so what's the claimant's case for reliance in Serco, Tom? Well, despite the autonomy development, none of the Serco claimants are advancing a direct reliance case based on specific statements in the defendant's published information. So on that basis, the defendant argued that it would be proportionate for all of the non-direct reliance cases to be tried at the second trial. It said that these claimants are likely to have great difficulties in light of the autonomy decision, and it would achieve certainty if they could be disposed of at trial two. So just to clarify, Tom, the defendant wanted all indirect cases instead of just a sample. Um, I suppose you could say that the defendant was trying to make uh, the case turn a new leaf. John, your, your jokes are in full bloom today. So unfortunately for the defendant, whilst the court did accept that the fact that no claimant seeks to advance a direct reliance case based on specific statements is material, it was not persuaded to move away from the sampling approach ordered at the first CMC, and it rejected the defendant's move to include all of the indirect reliance cases in the second trial. Thanks, Tom. I also love the fact that you did the kind of finger quotation marks for material in the podcast. That's Wonderful. good. That's good. Um, <laughs> um, I know we have a blog post on this decision which looks at this in a bit more detail for those who are interested in this area. And there's a link to our blog post in the show notes, of course. That is correct, Kerry. And I have one question for our listeners today, which is, does February March? The answer is no, but April May. <laughs> Very good. Jesus, too good, Tom, too good. Well, look, let's spring forward into uh, my case on class actions, which is uh, commission recovery and Marks and Clark. And in this case, the claimant had alleged the defendant, which was a patent and trademark firm, had received secret commissions 
for referring clients to a third-party provider of IP renewal services. And the claimant sought to bring the action under CPR 19.6 as representative of current and former clients of the defendant. So, John, what do you think I'm going to say about the CPR 19.6 reference? That it's now known as CPR 19.8. Oh, very good. Uh, Gold star for civil procedural knowledge. Well, uh, in a bid to dazzle you further with my knowledge of CPR 19.8 representative actions, I can tell you that they allow group claims to proceed on an opt-out basis and are therefore typically favoured by claimants because individual class members do not need to be identified. But in this case... The defendant applied to strike out the claim on the ground that the same interest, Tom's quotation marks, uh, requirement for a representative action was not met, i.e. the claimant representatives did not have the same interest as all other class members. I think that general awareness of this particular rule um, stems from the seminal decision in Lloyd and Google. I know that the Supreme Court took quite a narrow approach to the same interest requirement in Lloyd and Google. Has has the court followed suit here, John? Well, no, perhaps surprisingly not. Um, this decision appears to be quite a major departure from uh, the previous case law. So whilst the High Court accepted that some elements of the claim might differ depending on class members' individual circumstances, it did not see this as an impediment to allowing the representative representative action procedure to be used, and the reason for that was there was no conflict of interest between the claims of the class members. Now the Court envisaged that some aspects of the claims may, in due course, need to be dealt with through individual arrangements, but this did not stop the court from allowing the claim to proceed on a 19.8 basis. So the court seems to have adopted quite a liberal uh, approach to the same interest requirement here. So just looking at this decision from a bank's perspective, there is a risk of opening the door to more claims under the CPR 19.8 opt-out procedure, particularly because there is a somewhat blooming, I'm here all week, trend for claimants to look for innovative procedural routes to bring in class action on an opt-out basis. Yes, well, indeed. Uh, We'll have to see where this one gets to on appeal. The first instance judge has actually refused leave to appeal, but um, we understand that the defendant has applied for permission directly from the Court of Appeal. And perhaps a successful appeal is a realistic possibility in this case, considering uh, the High Court's departure from the reasoning in Lloyd and Google. Uh, But we will see. Um, But as ever, there's a link uh, to our blog post in the show notes. Now, uh, I hope that uh, our podcasters manage to get away from their desks for uh, a relaxing Easter break. Uh, yeah, me too, although I'm not sure how relaxing any holiday can be when you have young kids. Well, indeed, um, that's true, Kerry. Uh, but my question for you both is, what is the difference between a spring break and a summer break? No more allergies in summer, Joe? Uh, nice try, Tom. Uh, the answer is, um, driving down uh, roads in Dorset and Wiltshire won't make a summer break. You've got to be pulling my leg. Good one, John. <laughs> right, Not Kerry, last too loud. <laughs> so moving on. Uh, over to Kerry now, our Quince Care Queen of the Season. I quite like that. Thank you, John. Uh, so the case I have for our listeners today sends us 12 hours across the globe to a somewhat warmer and more humid spring climate nightmare if you have a fringe, uh, namely to Hong Kong for the decision in P.T. Asaransi, Tugu Pratama, I mean, Indonesia, TBK and Citibank. Uh, that's a quince care decision recently handed down by the Hong Kong Court of Final Ap- Appeal. Now, I have to say, that's actually the first time I've even attempted to pronounce that out loud, and I think that showed. Um, hmm. 
Okay, so Hong Kong. So I assume the judgment is not binding on the courts of England and Wales? Yeah, that's right, Tom. However, the leading judgment was delivered by Lord Sumption, a former justice of the UK Supreme Court. So I predict it's likely to have influence over here. I entirely agree, especially considering the fact that we are awaiting judgment from the Supreme Court in Philip and Barclays. Uh, which is set to be the key decision in this jurisdiction on the scope of this novel and controversial duty. So it will be very interesting to see if this Hong Kong decision shapes the Supreme Court's analysis in the UK. Yes, it will indeed. Uh, Before we get into the analysis, I'll just give our listeners a quick high-level summary of the facts. So, over the course of four years, funds received into Tugu's bank account with... Citibank were paid out to officers of Tugu in 26 transfers and that money was of course never seen again. So Tugu claimed that all 26 of the transfers were dishonestly authorised by the signatories on Tugu's account and sought recovery from Citibank of the total of the sums transferred. Tugu also claimed damages for breach of the Quince Care duty owed by the bank not to carry out payment instructions in circumstances where the bank knew of a serious or real possibility of uh, the fraud. Thanks, Kerry. Let's spring into action on the most important observations. So on the scope of the Quince Care duty, Lord Sumption casts the Quince Care duty as one side of a coin, suggesting that there are two juridical sources for a bank's duty in making payments out of its customer's account. The first side of the coin is their classic quince care duty, which is um, part of the bank's duty to exercise reasonable skill and care when dealing with payment instructions from its customer. The second side of the coin involves the bank's duty only to make payments out of its customer's account when authorised to do so, i.e. when the authorised signatory as the customer's agent is acting within the parameters of their actual or apparent sensible authority. So Lord Sumption suggested that the source of duty is not critical and the standard of duty under both is in fact the same. So regardless of whether you look at the Quince Care duty or the issue of a sensible authority, the critical question is what constitutes notice so as to require a bank to make inquiries before paying out in accordance with the mandate. If this way of framing Quince Care is correct, then it could have repercussions for the Philip and Barclays appeal. The way that Lord Sumption twins Quince Care with the ostensible authority question suggests that the Quince Care duty should be no wider than the question of whether the agent of the customer had ostensible authority to make the payment. Well, it'll certainly be interesting to see if the Supreme Court agrees with this proposition in um, Philip and Barclays, given that the agency requirement was rejected by the Court of Appeal in that case. Yeah, John, my heart skips beat every time I receive an email notification from the Supreme Court about a new judgment. Uh, but perhaps that is oversharing. So I've read the blog post in this decision, which, thank you, by the way, and what I found really interesting was Lord Sumption's observations about limitation and contributory negligence in Quenscare claims. So can you tell us any more about this? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, so... The both of these points are underpinned by the idea that a quince care claim is actually a claim in debt rather than a claim for damages. This is because if a bank has debited an account without authority, the customer is entitled to disregard the debit and require the account to be reconstituted. So the customer will have a claim in debt for the full reconstituted balance of the account. Viewing the cause of action in this way has a massive implication for recovery. Potentially, it means that the limitation clock will not start to tick until the customer demands payment, which could be many years after the fraudulent transfers are made. 
And also, a successful debt claim cannot ordinarily be reduced on the basis of contributory negligence. Very interesting observations, all stemming from the fact that the fundamental nature of the banker-customer relationship is one of debtor and creditor. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Uh, Really interesting discussion of that in Sumption's judgment. Uh, And I really enjoyed this case, actually. I thought it was um, a really interesting judgment to read. I just love the way that the law is always evolving. If you fancy getting right to the roots of Tugu and Citibank, uh, once again, there's a link to our blog post in the show notes. Uh, You know, I've never really been into gardening, but this spring I started planting seeds and it grew on me. Well done, Kerry. I I actually did my annual uh, seed shop at Poundland just the other day. But this, you know, filled me with the question, should you plant seeds in any month besides April? Mm. I suppose you may as well. Ah, brilliant. (laughs) Now, up next is a bit of procedural update with three short and snappy cases, just like the hours of darkness at this time of year. Hurrah! Over to you, Tom, for the first one. Thank you, Kerry. So the procedural case I have today is PJSC National Bank Trust and Mints, where the High Court considered the impact of UK sanctions against Russia on various aspects of litigation when it involves a sanctioned party. So the litigation arises out of the claims by the Russian National Bank Trust and Bank Akritia for USD 850 million, alleging that the defendants conspired with representatives of the claimants to enter uncommercial transactions by which loans were replaced by worthless bonds. So the litigation was progressing towards trial at the time when Russia invaded Ukraine. So shortly after that invasion, the UK government imposed asset freeze restriction, restrictions against Bank Arcadia and added it to the consolidated list of financial sanctions targets maintained by the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, which made Arcadia a designated person. And just a reminder to podcasters that asset freeze restrictions are subject to certain listed exceptions and acts which would otherwise breach the restrictions, um, and they may be licensed by offices. So what are the court's key findings, Tom? Well, John, the defendants sought a stay of the proceedings, arguing that while the sanctions against the claimants remained in force, the entry of any judgment would be unlawful. However, the court found that UK sanctions do not prevent the English court from entering judgment on a pre-sanctions claim brought by the sanctioned person. So there is no need for a license from OFSI in order to enter judgment. OFSI can, however, license the sanctioned party to do other things in relation to ongoing litigation such as an adverse costs order. In view of the importance of the issues raised, I believe the court gave permission to the defendants to appeal the judgment to the Court of Appeal? Yes, it did. And the Court of Appeal has set a hereby date of 12th February 2024, just after my birthday. So if you'd like to read more about this case, there is a link to our blog in the show notes. We also have a specific sanctions blog where you can follow the latest developments in the sanctions space. So I'll leave you with one final question. What makes Yoda such a good gardener? Do not know. His green Green fingers. His green thumb. Very good. Thanks, Tom. I'll uh, put the date in the diary for next year. John, what's next for um, our procedural update section? I'm not sure that joke really works. But anyway, uh, next is an interim decision uh, on disclosure, um, and the case is Lowerly Financing and Credit Suisse Securities. Uh, in a nutshell, or I suppose a bulb, uh, the claimant uh, brought claims against the defendants in relation to CDO transactions that the defendants had arranged. And in the present application, the defendant sought an order that the claimant disclose certain documents from the claimant's main creditor on the basis that such documents were regarded as being within the claimant's control. And the defendant's case was that the uh, knowledge of the creditor uh, should count as the claimant's knowledge for these purposes. 
So the question of when a third party's documents are in a litigant's control and so subject to its disclosure obligations is a common issue. So in recent authorities, the courts have taken a relatively broad view, finding that there's no need for an enforceable legal right to obtain the documents that it's sufficient that there is a continuing arrangement or understanding that in practice provides the litigant with a right of access. So, John, what approach did the High Court take this time? And look, you're absolutely right in that summary. The, the courts, I think, have been, I think it's fair to say, responding to various devices or attempts to get round uh, disclosure over the years. So as you say, it's very broad. Uh, in this particular case, the High Court held that the documents uh, of the claimant's creditor were not in the claimant's control uh, for the purposes of disclosure. And although two employees of the creditor uh, had acted as the claimant's agent in conducting the litigation, that did not mean that all documents to which they had access in their capacity as the creditor's employees were in the claimant's control. That's interesting. So I guess Mm. this decision shows limits to the previous authorities when the question comes down to the scope of agency. Exactly, Tom. I think um, the the more complicated the facts, the the harder the court's going to have to look under the bonnet. But in any event, there's a a link uh, to the blog post in our show notes if podcasters are interested in reading more. Thanks, John. I'll wrap up with one last, but not least, procedural update on settlement offers. So in Warburton... Oh, there's a claimant whose name is full of flour. Oh, very good, John. Yes, yes. Uh, In Warburton and the Chief Constable of Avon and Somerset Constabulary... Uh, The Court of Appeal construed a defendant's Part 36 offer to settle the whole of the claim, which the claimant had accepted, as relating only to the pleaded claims, but not the additional claims set out in the claimant's draft amended particulars of claim. However, the claimant could not bring new proceedings raising those additional claims, because to do so would have been an abusive process under the so-called Henderson Abuse Principle, as the additional claims could and should have been raised, if at all, in the earlier action. The decision highlights a potential trap for the unwary, as a party might assume that claims put forward in a draft amended pleading will will be encompassed in a settlement resulting from the acceptance of a Part 36 offer to settle the whole of the claim. Warburton suggests that this will not be the case. Indeed. In those circumstances, I think we would recommend a call to bank offer rather than a Part 36 offer. Mm, yeah, good idea, John. Thank you. Um, well, uh, I assume there is a blog post on this case too, Kay? Uh, yes, there is indeed um, a blog post. Please do check out the link. Excellent. Well, there we are, podcasters. Another hedgerow bursting into colour for you uh, today, showering you with, uh, with some spring blossom. Thank you in particular to our podcaster in the Southern Hemisphere, who is probably experiencing autumn just now, um, for his own um, mock podcast that he has been uh, running to his colleagues. And uh, thank you all podcasters for um, uh, the world over uh, for tuning in. And we look forward to uh, speaking to you again probably in the summertime. Thank you, Kerry. And thank you, Tom. Thank you, John. Thank you.